Hi, I'm Maria from Waterloo, and you're listening to CKMS 102.7 FM, Radio Waterloo. This is Vifo. You're listening to For All the Animals Save the World on 102.7 CKMS FM, Radio Waterloo. Hi, I'm Jody Swinnell. Welcome to our very first episode of Reader's Delight. We're here to bring together writers and readers of the region as well as promote our vibrant literary community. It's Sunday, January 28th, and we're live on CKMS 102.7 FM Radio Waterloo. Reader's Delight is brought to you by the KW Writers Alliance. Today we have three writers here who will captivate you by reading 10-minute excerpts from one of their stories. Stay tuned and prepare to be entertained. Our first reader in the studio with me is Carl Innes. Carl was raised on a diet of Hammer House of Horror, The Twilight Zone, and Ray Bradbury. Carl's stories range from the strange to the supernatural, and they are all inspired by his previous career as a soldier, police officer, and international security consultant. Wow. <laughs> you must have a lot of exciting experiences to draw upon. Well, a few more misadventures and adventures, if I'm honest. But, <laughs> I <so>. bet. <laughs> Thank you for coming in today, Carl. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to read and begin when you're ready. Well, start off with thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm going to read one of my short stories, or part of one of my short stories, from my anthology of supernatural and horror stories that's available on Kindle, entitled The Eye of Calchas. Uh, this story, particular story is entitled The Meal, and it's based, in, or inspired rather, on an investigation I was part of many years ago as a, as a cop in England. Wow. Okay, well, we're excited to hear it. Can I fire away? Go for it. Okay. The Meal. It was the 33rd such meeting of the New World Hellfire Club, The membership had unfortunately dwindled over the years to the point where it was only he, Dawson Welsh, Dr. Patel and Mr. and Mrs. Simpson that were now active members. Oh, Clive Lester would pop in intermittently, however he was in such demand as a war correspondent that his visits were far and few between. And in truth, his sabbaticals were not so much about gastronomic indulgence, but rather an opportunity for his ego-eccentric incessant stories to take centre stage. Tales of daring deeds from the far-flung corners of the globe, punctuated only by the occasional mouthful of whatever was on offer. How tedious. Dawson basted the sweetbreads once more with the garlic and sage-infused butter and looked out of his window over from the vast kitchen over the elegant manicured gardens who he financed but took no part in maintaining. He sighed and let his mind wander back to the glory days of the club. In 1992, there had been 22 num- members. Each and every one of the group had been personally vetted by Dawson, who would use his extensive wealth to employ the services of reputable private detective agencies. Thus, he was able to ensure that all applicants nominated were not undercover police officers, or worse still, investigative journalists. That had been at the height of the club's activities. Since then, members had drifted away over the years. Many had become fearful of discovery. Others lamented the lack of true gastronomic adventures to be had anymore. Some simply sought out new ways to sate their desire for forbidden indulgences. Whatever the reasons, it was now just the four who attended the biannual dinner parties that attempted to push back the constraints of traditionally perceived acceptable dining. But tonight was to be different. Tonight would mark the resurgence of the club, of that was Jawson was sure. What he had discovered, what he would be presenting, would be nothing less than legendary. Dawson smiled to himself as he took the sweetbreads from the heat. He turned to the fridge from where he recovered the liver pate that was to be the first course. He painstakingly prepared each of the small plates, ensuring that he grated equal amounts of truffle on each. The pureed salsify was settling in the stainless steel warmer. Dawson had tasted the roost vegetable that tasted surprisingly like artichoke hearts and found the infusion of the merest hint of citrus might be required. Dawson took a deep breath and checked the three-tier convection oven. Inside the roasting tray, a cornucopia of assorted root vegetables nestled alongside the somewhat conservative portions of laid meat, whose skin was now an alluring hue of light brown. Everything would be ready on time. As if on cue, the doorbell rang. As Dawson made his way to the front door of the house, he paused for a moment to cast an experienced eye over the dining room settings to ensure that he had forgotten nothing. Satisfied, he's made his way to the oversized double oak doors, and with his normal aplomb, opened the door to his home and guests. Greetings, one and all. 
Now, the club had a long-standing tradition of punctuality for numerous reasons, and true to form, all three of the guests were standing on the threshold. Dr. Patel nodded in return and smiled tightly at Dawson. The ferret-like eternal academic was hunched over a bottle something, red as if shielding it from the elements. As Dawson stepped to the side, allowing entry, he wondered why the doctor even bothered bringing wine any more. The plebeian fool never meant spent more than $50 on a bottle, and consequently he was guilty of almost single-handedly ruining some of their collective dining experience with his borderline vinegar. The doctor offered a tepid handshake as he stepped into the hallway. Tess Simpson smiled her caustic smile as she issued Dawson a token kiss on both cheeks, probably something she'd picked up in Europe on her last sojourn. She looked vaguely surprised. The ravages of plastic surgery were always more evident when she attempted to display any form of emotion. What was she wearing? It was definitely a Marc Jacobs original, but the deep purple dress was obviously intended only for the waif-like heroin-inspired models that graced the catwalks, rather than a middle-aged, portly, soft-drink magnet's wife from Boston. Now, her husband, Neil, was a shrewd and calculating man with quick eyes that missed nothing. He was reserved and conservative in both views and oratory. It suited his purpose to have such a simple, unassuming wife who asked no questions and could barely formulate a thought of her own. Neil was in prime shape of a man for his years. A sure sign thought Dawson that he was still playing the field. Neil simply nodded at Dawson as he stepped into the house. Dawson took the coat from Mrs. Simpson, who proceeded to giggle for some unknown reason. Dawson smiled graciously at her inappropriate schoolgirl antics and hung her coat before leading the trio through to the dining hall. Another tradition of the club was that they would not be given over to undue conversation before the meal at hand. All rumination and cogitation should be reserved for the dissecting of the culinary offerings. They were, after all, an exclusive clandestine dining club, not a sewing circle. Dawson had placed himself at the head of the table with the Simpsons at his left and right and with the doctor to the left of Mrs. Simpson. Once seated, the visitors looked obediently at Dawson, who smiled contentedly at the faces before him. I promised you something special, not purely in terms of gastronomic delight, but also in terms of historical relevance. Indeed, not just for our club, but for mankind in general. Dawson realised he probably looked quite smug, but he didn't care. Tess gawked. The doctor rang his hands, and Neil raised a single eyebrow in disbelief, a technique he practised since he'd viewed a screening of Goldfinger at his cinema at a boy. That's quite a claim, old chap, he said wryly. And one I do not make lightly, I assure you. Now, with further ado, I shall begin. Neil, would you be so good as to serve the wine while I attend to the meal? Neil rose and made his way to the large carvery unit that ran the full length of the dining room. There, Dawson had left, left handwritten cards detailing which bottles should be served with which particular course. Neil dutifully read the cards and selected the appropriate bottle. Dawson himself practically skipped back to the kitchen in anticipation of what was to follow. As normal, the meal would be served and then the guests would attempt to fathom what they had actually eaten. It was inevitably quite amusing, and the reason why Dawson always preferred to be the host. The eclectic array of food over the years had initially been quite impressive. Lion tartare, an engastration of wildfowl, beginning with a swan and finishing with a hummingbird, and who could forget the live monkey brains? However, after a while, there were only so many endangered species one could consume, let alone purchase given the extent of New World caution and the subsequent scrutiny in relation to wildlife in general. There had, of course, been the inevitable foray into the world of cannibalism. Dawson had found a young woman online in Brazil who had willingly parted with one of her legs for a mere $10,000. Dr. Patel had performed the amputation at his surgery after hours. Her stabilization and recuperation was conducted at his remote Catskill retreat in Upper New York. Now, the plan had almost gone awry when the woman had broken down in tears at the airport before her return flight and customs officers had asked her to look inside the prosthetic leg. Now, the leg itself had been unremarkable in terms of taste and only knowledge of the actual pot roast really contained titillated the diners in attendance that night. Dawson returned to the dining room with a large silver platter holding four portions of liver pâté. The general consensus was favourable but not enthralling. The sweetbreads followed to much acclaim, and Dawson's decision to serve them with a port reduction was much lauded. Then came the roast with roof vegetables. Now, the trio took their time with the main course as if they knew it was intended to be a ruse. Their instincts are right, of course, thought Dawson, but no matter how refined their taste buds, no matter how honed their sense of smell, he knew they would never be able to guess what they had just eaten. When the last plate had been cleared away, Dawson returned to the kitchen nonchalantly nursing his brandy. 
His guests were in the midst of deep debate, and he could contain himself no longer when he returned. Well, what's the verdict, he asked as he sat down at the head of the table. Neil had actually been making notes during the meal, and he referred to his small notebook as he spoke. We have you on the pate. The doctor initially shot ostrich, but I recognize a texture from my travels out east. It was dolphin liver, wasn't it? Dawson raised his glass in congratulations and waited for Neil to continue. The doctor and Tess beamed. Now for the sweetbreads. A nod to your culinary prowess here. Only the most assured chefs can infuse a good degree of subtlety and fragrance into a decidedly gamey and coarse liver from a silverback gorilla. Bravo, said Dawson, who took a long sip of his brandy and let the alcohol burn the back of his throat before swallowing as he regarded the others. Neil eventually sat back and tossed his notebook on the table. The other two diners looked somewhat crestfallen. Fine, I've no idea. Dawson was in his element. Now so close to the revelation, he wanted to savour the moment, so he pretended to examine the contents of his glass. He allowed the silence to linger. Tess sat forward again. Was it, um, penguin, she asked tentatively. Neil looked embarrassed as Dawson shook his head. No, my dear Mrs Simpson, it certainly wasn't penguin. The doctor wanted on the debate. Rat, it was giant Amazonian swamp rat, wasn't it? Dawson confined his amusement to a brief chuckle. No, doctor, not rat either. Neil let out an exaggerated sigh. Dawson asked innocently, The verdict. Exquisite, said Neil begrudgingly. Succulent and rich, but it did taste rather like chicken, gushed Tess apologetically. Neil rolled his eyes. Dawson looked directly at the doctor. Heavenly, said the doctor meekly. Indeed, Dawson replied, before abruptly standing up. I think I will let the fair speak for itself, if he would be so good as to follow me. Dawson turned and walked quickly out of the dining room, and the perplexed Gless had to hurry to catch up with him. They arrived at his side at the door to the wine cellar, which was locked. Dawson produced a solitary key from his waistcoat pocket, which he inserted into the lock. Opening the door, he took the flashlight from where it was hanging just inside the door. As he descended the steps, he motioned to the others, Follow me, but leave the door ajar. We need the light. And no excessive noise, please. The cellar was pitch black, and as Dawson reached the bottom, he turned on the flashlight. The conventional bulb had been replaced with one of a blue variety. They all stopped on the stairs and collectively heard the scampering of small feet and the sound of metal chain being dragged along the ground. What is it? Tess asked in a frightened whisper. Dawson did not answer but let the beam from the flashlight search the gloom. In the far corner, the beam hit something small that seemed to recoil from the light. With the movement came the sound of dragging chains once more. There was a shrill squeal that cut through the moment causing all to flinch bar Dawson. Dawson sighed. Oh, it's caught up again. He turned to Neil, passing him the flashlight. Hold it steady for me, would you? Neil tried to track ahead of Dawson as he walked into the gloom. After a few steps, he bent down, and on the ground was part of a long chain which had become hinged on an exposed beam. When he unhooked the chain, he did not let it fall to the ground, but instead held it at waist height, so that it angled down to whatever was chained at the other end. Neil instinctively tracked the torch along the chain, and there, a few feet away from Dawson, was the captive. The chain was connected to a metal collar that had been placed around the throat of a small creature that was sitting on its haunches, huddled over, its back to the group. The thing was small and fleshy. It appeared to have four limbs, and there were two perpendicular fresh scars on its back, the only apparent blemishes on the whole body. Whatever it was slowly turned its head slightly, looking over its shoulder fearfully, and in doing so revealed a shock of curly hair and two doleful eyes. My God, it's a child, shrieked Tess. Christ, Dawson, what have you done? Questioned Neil hoarsely as he placed a protective arm around his wife. Dawson turned to face his accusers, looking decidedly bored, despite the panic in there. It's not a child, for God's sake. Let's answer the expert. Doctor? The doctor had been standing on the bottom steps, started moving towards Dawson. He took the flashlight from Neil's hand and went right up to the creature that was now curled up once more. The doctor shone the beam over the creature's back and began a cursory examination. The flesh was bounteous. Obviously, the creature was not malnourished. The being, he estimated, was indeed approximate size to that of an average two-year-old. Tight lots have appeared to be what sandy blonde hair stopped at the nape of the neck, and the two scars that ran either side of the spine starting just below the hairline ran for about five inches. Although fairly recent scars, they looked healthy enough with good oxygenation and no sign of infection. The doctor turned to Dawson. I need to see the front. Dawson obliged the doctor by stepping forward and raising the chain he was holding to his chest height. 
This resulted in the creature being partially lifted from the ground. As it happened, the creature let out a little squeal and brought its hands up to the collar in an attempt to relieve the pressure. The creature began to turn around to face the group. Another squeal, this time from Tess, who sank into her husband's embrace even further. The creature did indeed resemble a small, chubby child. Plump cheeks and folds of flesh echoing through the arms and legs. But the face told a different story. Although young in appearance, there was something about the eyes, large and doleful to the point of being caricature in nature. Deep blue, innocent, and at the same time ancient. And then there were the nether regions, where the sexual organs should have been, there was nothing. The skin of the groin was as smooth and as unblemished as the dolls. Even from the steps, Neil could see the strange creature as it balanced on tiptoes to prevent itself from choking. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> I really want to hear more, actually. Wow, how, did, how, how long did it take you to work on that one? Um, that's probably the culmination of about three months of work on and off, to be wow. honest. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it, as we talked about before we we went on air. It's a it's a process whereby I'll I'll feel passionately enough to write something down quickly, then I revisit it continually in an effort to you know fine tune it. Beautiful. Thanks. And and the way you deliver it <laughs> was amazing. I'm envious. <laughs> you you read very well. Thank you. Thank you ever so much. All right. Well, stay t- stay with us, and we'll be right back with our second reader. Our next reader that I'm pleased to introduce is Brian Van Norman from Waterloo. Brian has three highly acclaimed novels currently on the market. Once a teacher, theater director, and adjudicator, Brian left those worlds to travel with his wife and take up writing as a full-time pursuit. Thank you for being here today, Brian. I bet you've had many interesting adventures during your travels. You certainly have. Yeah. learned a lot about climate change. Oh, did you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I believe that. That yeah. must be fascinating. Yes, it was. And that inspires a lot of your stories, I it imagine? Does. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're ready, tell us briefly what you're reading and go ahead. Okay, thank you. I'm going to read from the final novel of my Against the Machine trilogy, which is based on the theme of um, human-machine interface over 400 years. Cool. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let, let's hear it. This is called Against the Machine Evolution. <clears throat> the Greenland hypersonic wing signaled its approach. Everyone's net lit up. Still in null gravity, passengers peered out to glimpse black space. A glance around showed several of them released from their seats floating in air. Soon, the transparent Keaton crystalline windows would be shielded. A monotonous three-toned ring repeated as lights came on while the final travelers floated back to their uniform pods. Guided by deft flight attendants, 
They were buckled in to await the descent to Toronto Meg. Soon the roar of re-entry would gather around them as the ship fell back into the atmosphere. There was a celebrity on this flight. His autograph seal had been frequently employed. He was a hard man to miss. Over two meters tall, a muscular body revealed itself even through his olive-colored Econel suit. His face and hands also caught people's attention. Unlike most Meg citizens, rebuilt and refurbished to look eternally young and flawless, Arian Meller possessed a scarred, hardened visage. It made him a kind of wonder to the others, an actual battle commander in their midst, a man who had killed, who had commanded his Toronto Meg Raptors from victory to victory. Everyone wanted a moment with him, fearful or not. His digital seal imprinted their Ephraims for all their friends to be impressed. The hypersonic flight was an extravagance. Few had ventured outside their Meg and nearly none had been in space. Yet Meller never tired of flying for any purpose, away games, special appearances, holidays or business trips. Despite his experience, the weightless wonder of space continued to be as extraordinary to him as it was to the tourists. The window shields closed, the wing altered attitude for re-entry, the seats turned inward facing each other. In 10 minutes the shields would open again as the liner spun towards its landing, giving passengers an opportunity to see their homes from above. Arian Meller studied the ship's occupants. Of the 26 passengers, he was the only one of D-Air cased. Everyone else but the attendants were D-E. He noted the glimmer of their lobule studs, gold patterns on each left ear, symbolic pinnacles of the cased system which governed all civilized people. The lobule pinions were personal CPUs controlling the filaments of deep neural stimulation connecting everyone to the net. Most people wore stylish wraparound glasses which served as their heads-up hologram screens while others employed contact lenses. It took advanced training to learn the blink method with those. He could feel the collective mood ease as the trembling ship stopped and the shields reopened. Sunlight spilled in shining gold bars through the semicircle of windows. Beneath them, their part of the planet appeared. They were coming in over the Atlantic coastline, far east of Toronto Meg. He noted the ruins of coastal cities, broken now, leveled by an ecocide of smothering plastics, ocean flooding and climatic confrontations cut to pieces by typhoon after tsunami after firestone after plague and starvation and, of course, the violent migrations of the desperate. The horrors of the Omegan era appeared everywhere. It was said migrants still lived in the jagged, flooded space once called New York City. Then they passed over the coast and caught a sparkle of Keaton crystalline domes from Albany Meg. They could glimpse the northeastern edge of the continental desert with Chicago Meg, a pinprick, around which appeared patches of arable land. Even now he could notice a mammoth sandstorm rolling across long stretches to the south. The wings spun to lower altitudes. Inside the domes was the safety and comfort of artificial climate. Outside, in what were once suburbs, now broken structures, skeletal ancient towers, patchwork farms and smashed pavement trails stretched hundreds of kilometers east, north and west of Toronto Meg. There in that twisted landscape lived the mass, the disconnected. They were not of the corporate. They had no lobules. They were the turbulent children of migrants 
who once fled the wasted reaches, flooded coasts, and fiery interiors to seek succor from mayhem. It was different before the religious wars in the former Middle East. That wasted slash of the globe was uninhabitable now. Their nuclear blasts had brought a year-long winter, while radiation fallout following the Earth's upper wind patterns created so many newborn mutants. Billions of humans died, most of the Earth's land animals as well. Then, when the winter passed, to everyone's astonishment, the climate shift resumed, inexorably and irrevocably altering the Earth. Before, even with crazy Megan, Omegan tyrants and their ignorant, heedless populations, the Earth had been different, lush, green, kind, not now. What was left of arable land around the Megs was harsh, beaten by sun and wind to become dust. There was no war now. There could never be with silicons capable of laying waste to any uprising on the planet. The DE controlled the earth using the Meg corporate and the net, which had brought all civilized people digitally together and even via holograms into the squares and street corners of the mass. Everything was organized in the algorithmic governance modus of the corporate. Closer to his home, Meller glimpsed mammoth wind farms and multi-storied agri-fields, as well as the hundred-meter-high foam stone walls surrounding the city, separating Mass from Meg. He observed the translucent solar foil fields mounted on the south sides of the glimmering domes, then looking through the remaining transparency at the rest of Toronto Meg, he saw the skyscraper canyons made from ceramics, natural polymers, elastocalaric alloys, and, of course, the miracle Keaton crystalline. Additionally, through DNA refurbishment and cloning, the Meg enclosed carefully planned flora and fauna growing everywhere even up the sides of buildings. Crispered birds flitted from building to building across the canyons and streets below. Small mammals inhabited the large green spaces inside the domes. Even insects had been reestablished. He felt a moment of quiet pride. This was his Meg. Hollow slogans and promotional LEDs suffused building surfaces. Bullet tubes crisscrossed the chasms like stems of crystal vine. Hovering drones of all sizes flew along a grid of laser traffic lanes and, just briefly, he glimpsed the ant swarm of people and silicon droids at ground level and on the many spiraling walkways. The wing having slowed considerably, slipped sideways toward the aerial gateway at the northwest corner of the Meg. There it hovered, awaiting entrance through mammoth gates. Once they had opened, the wind penetrated, penetrated the decontamination dome, placed within the Meg walls, though not connected with other domes of the Meg proper. The passengers would disembark here and wend their ways through the varied tests, probes, scans, and light baths, destroying errant viruses brought in from the pestilential earth outside. And how long has that been, book been available? Uh, just since November. November. Oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. The trilogy is... Uh, three novels uh -huh. uh, the first one is historical fiction okay. the second is contemporary and this one obviously is science fiction science fiction yes but they're not connected they're only they're standalone novels but uh, connected only by the theme oh that's interesting mm -hmm. oh wow yeah. and what made you put that together I live in Waterloo and uh, <laughs> I've been watching um, 
some pretty amazing things coming out of the university. Right. And uh, it's, um, you know, as I said, my travels have made me see uh, the results of climate change and I think the first climate migrations now with people moving north. True, true. Um, Everywhere, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The population's exploding. I, yeah, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me here. It's oh, really it was a pleasure to listen. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very excited to listen to all the authors. This is really uh, quite a blessing for me. Oh, <laughs> it's like an audio book, kind of. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, continue listening, and we'll be back shortly with today's closing reader. Hi guys, we're back. I'm here with our final reader today, and our final reader's name is Carolyn Wilker. Carolyn is an author, editor, storyteller from Kitchener who explores her muse in memoir, poetry, inspirational, and children's stories. Did I get that right, Carolyn? Good. All right. Welcome, Carolyn. We appreciate you coming to the studio. What will you be reading us today? I'm reading A Room is Waiting from Good Grief People. Excellent. Okay. Whenever you're ready, you go ahead and get started. Thank you. A room is waiting. I bought the daffodils for my father. He'd been in bed in a hospice for a couple of weeks, no longer able to will his body or trust his legs to get out of bed of his own accord. The daffodils would bring a spot of springtime brightness to his room, something he could look at from his bed. I also bought a large bag of peanuts, an item on the wish list of the hospice. Each patient room had a door and window to the outside, so patients could look out, even if they could not physically go out. I'd take the pot of daffodils and the peanuts and spread some peanuts outside to entice the squirrels to come closer so Dad could watch their antics. I saw a small smile on his face the day I brought the flowers. He likes spring as I do when the earth comes back to life. Other visitors brought flowering plants too, 
tiny crocuses, tulips, and narcissus. They brightened the spacious vanilla-colored room that already looked like a comfortable place. My sisters and I agreed that hospice was a good place for him to spend his last days, whether it was days, weeks, or even months. No one knew when the last conversation would take place. It felt like standing on the edge of a cliff. We knew in our head the time would come, but would we be ready to say goodbye? The separation would be hardest. Maybe Dad was feeling the same way, but he never gave words to it, at least not to me. He was always more a man of action than speaking, except for certain topics he could really get into, such as trees, farming, or care of the environment. Dad smiled when he saw me, but we didn't talk a lot. I said, Dad, how are you doing? After a bit, I asked, would you like to listen to some music? Volunteers had thoughtfully brought a selection into his room. The CDs lay stacked on his bedside table. The news aired on the big large screen TV and it seemed to take over. I want to know what's going on out there, he said, meaning the world, outside the walls of that place. So, and so I sat with him quietly and watched the news too, making conversation on stories he commented on, just spending time together. That day, he didn't want to talk about how his body was failing him. He was surely thinking about his reason for being in hospice, just as I was. I took my cues from the look on his face, if he was tired or just wanted to watch the weather or the program that came next. Perhaps it's facing his death that he's having troubles with, as though the sands of the hourglass were marking his remaining time. I sensed that he wanted to prolong his life. He was struggling. It had been a good and long life, and he'd worked hard, spent time with us, then had time to enjoy his retirement. At 90, he knew this was his last place away from where he'd always called home. Weeks later, when all the flower blooms were done, my sister Mary asked Dad, what do you want me to do with them? He thought about it, as he always did of any request, then asked her to divide them among siblings. Mary upended each pot onto newspaper on the table in his room, and for a day or two, the drying bulbs made the room smell like the earth, as though it were a nursery where bulbs might be packaged, a smell he was most familiar with as a farmer and planter of seeds and anything that grows in the soil. My dad said to me the next time I visited, take yours home and plant them. There was a bag for each of us. Mary handed me a paper bag that bore my name, I had to think where they would go since my flower beds were already quite full. I have an idea where I will plant them, Dad, one of two places. The next time I came to visit, he asked if I had planted them. Not yet, still deciding. His face wore a questioning look, but he said nothing. Did it mean he wished to hear they were planted? Impatience or disappointment was something he rarely showed in words. But if I could read his expression, did it mean I should get on with it? I would plant them on my return home. Determined I would find a place, even if it was temporary, I put them in the ground. I had been waiting for some plants to emerge from the soil, so I'd know where the spaces were. Days after I'd done the planting, I went to visit again, but Dad was unresponsive. I should have done it sooner, but I whispered in his ear. I planted the bulbs. They're in my front flower bed, where I will see them out my kitchen window. Thank you. No reply, but I know he likely heard me. I learned long ago when I worked in a nursing home that the sense of hearing lingers after other functions seem to be gone. Still, I wouldn't see him smile, satisfied. Perhaps it didn't matter to him anymore that it was done, but to me it did. Our family had the peace of knowing where Dad would go at the end of his earthly life, a whole lot better than here. No need for snow shovels there or winter coats and mittens. No worries about flowers freezing when another icy blast comes in April. One day in May, when Dad struggled with his breathing, the nursing staff confirmed he was very close to the end. They were gentle, always explaining what they needed to do next, always being respectful of his privacy. More family members showed up and we were prepared to stay as long as necessary. 
dad's breathing evened out in the late evening hours, and most of the family members went home or somewhere else to sleep. That next day we returned. We urged mom to call the pastor. He came and performed a bedside service with children and grandchildren gathered around the bed. The room was full. We hugged each other and shook hands with the pastor. He got a few hugs, too. There were many tears as we held Dad's hand or gave him a gentle kiss on the cheek. You can let go. We'll be okay, and we'll miss you, I said. We'll look after Mom. Only a few hours later, Dad slipped the bonds of this earth, dying peacefully, and I wiped the last tear from his eye. As the philosopher wrote in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything, including death. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. My bulbs are well protected under a garden stone so that no squirrels or other small creatures will uproot them. I'll put the garden stone away for winter soon. Then next spring I'll watch the flowers bloom as they brighten my garden. And when I look at them blooming, I'll remember Dad and his love of the earth, nature, and plants that bring beauty and purpose. It's the end of that piece. It was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Where do you get your inspiration? A lot of it from life, real life. Yeah? Yeah. It's touching, really. Thank you. I wrote my children's, first children's book after my dad died to oh. teach my to share with my grandchildren and great nieces and nephews what their grandfather's passion was about trees. That's really touching. Oh, was, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Harry's Trees. It's on my website as well. Okay. And tell us what's your website? My All my books are on www.carolynwilker.ca. Perfect. I'm going to check you out for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd like to applaud all three of our guests and express my gratitude to them for sharing their stories with us on Reader's Delight. Stand by and we'll update you on some fun recreations you can attend in person. Time to play besides. Time ain't on my side. Time I'll never know.
that dance around your head In your eyes I see that perfect world I hope that doesn't sound too Hi guys, we're back and I have a little bit of a treat here. Vanessa Ricci Thode, who's actually the producer, one of the producers of the Reader's Delight series. Uh, welcome, Vanessa. Hi, Jody. Great to be here. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking this on. So for the listeners, my name is Vanessa Ricci Thode. I'm one of the organizers for KW Writers Alliance, I'm one of the co-founders and the events director. And uh, I've been working with Jody to put this together, and we're so excited to bring local authors to everyone in the region yes. and outside the region who may be listening. That's awesome. I'm pretty excited, too. Yeah, this is fantastic. You've, so you've, thank you so much, Jody. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. I mean, you've selected some great authors, and I was really, really blessed to be able to listen to them read. It was really interesting and I think I'm going to go out and get some audiobooks after this. <laughs> For sure. We have so much talent in this region and I'm so excited that we can showcase it. Excellent. And thank you. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back. Hi everyone, I want to make you all aware of a few exciting events coming up next month. The first one is For the Love of Books. It's a book fair as well as craft and reader themed goodies. You can come meet local authors and publishers at the Stratford Country Club on Saturday, February 17th from 12 to 6 p.m. It'll be at 53 Romeo Street North in Stratford. With free entry, you can bring the whole family. And if fun-themed craft markets interest you, the Snow Moon Witchy Market happens on Saturday, February 24th, and will also be held at the Stratford Country Club. That's 53 Romeo Street North from 5 to 9 p.m. Also, we'll have artist and author Trevor Clare. He'll be sharing his insights into his featured collection in the newly published book, The Art of Nostalgia, on Tuesday, February 6th from 7 to 8 p.m. This will take place at the Waterloo Public Library Eastside Branch on Rim, at Rim Park. 
Once again, I'd like to thank our three authors for coming into the studio today and fascinating us with their readings. Storytelling is a powerful way to appeal to our senses and emotions. It leaves an impact. Stories help us to understand and learn about each other. They entertain by conveying the author's point of view. If you missed anything or would like to listen to this installment again, you can hear the whole program on the CKMS 102.7 FM radio Waterloo website. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel at Reader's Delight KW. Reader's Delight will air every four weeks, so don't forget to tune in on February 25th from 1 to 2 p.m. We'll have brand new readers and a brand new episode. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jody Swinnell. So
It's Mark Riley, Adam Postma, 